So over Christmas, I enjoyed re-watching a very famous trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. Uh, you know, it's almost a Christmas tradition. Nearly every year I'll come back to it. Absolutely love it. Um, and I use this as some very informal preparation for this year's theme of courageous resistance. And I apologise for any spoilers here. If you've not watched this absolute masterpiece, resistance is shown throughout the film. Uh, there's Gandalf fighting back the powers of darkness. We've got Frodo carrying the ring, uh, but having to resist the pull to take it back to its master. Then we've got Erwin resisting fear as she brings down the leader of the ring wraiths. And this image right behind me at the moment, this image of water crashing through, through the, the valleys and into the bottom there, it reminds me of that scene in the first film. It reminds me where Arwen, the elven princess, she's picked up the wounded Frodo, pursued by the nine ring wraiths, and is racing back to Rivendell to get him medical attention before he passes into the Shadow Realm and becomes one of them. She gets to the water boundary. She stands defiantly and says, if you want him, come and claim him. Then, as they try to cross the river, the waters come crashing down the valley, and Arwen and Frodo continue their journey to Rivendell. And last week, Tim talked about resisting compromise. Resisting going with the flow of what the world thinks is the best way, the easy way, the comfortable way. And that image of the torrents of water crashing down through the valley is an indication of the strength of that force that would want you to follow along with the culture and message of compromise. But as Paul wrote in Romans 12:2, and we know this, don't we? Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be salmon, ready to leap upstream against the fast-flowing streams of negative opinions and compromising culture around you. And we saw that Daniel was that man of integrity, a man who chose to stand out, to not eat the wrong foods that were going to change his identity, to dull maybe his spiritual senses. And so he encouraged his friends to join him, and they took a stand. Perhaps Daniel knew that comfort is the enemy of progress. And this is a quote by P.T. Barnum. You may know him as Hugh Jackman in The Greatest Showman. And what Barnum meant by progress was to get on with things, to do something, to build something. For us as Christians, do we consider comfort to be the enemy of obedience? Do we consider it to be the enemy of spiritual growth, maybe? Which is our progress as we grow in Christ, isn't it? Where we get to know him even more. When we settle, whether that's in our hearts uh, and the beliefs that we hold or our, our physical place around us, maybe it's our habits, our behaviours, we maybe do this to feel safe, to avoid that conflict, to avoid the change and the fear of the unknown. Daniel felt convicted. He chose to take a stand and this morning, as we step into chapter 6 now, we see, again, he takes another stand. So let's open our Bibles, or if you've got an electronic device, you can open there to Daniel chapter 6. We're going to read the whole thing. I'm using the NIV. 
can't remember what Andrew calls it, the uh, nearly infallible version, is it? Yeah, there we go. So chapter 6. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom. Verse 2. With three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we will never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree. Put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room with the windows open towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and he prayed giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group and found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king and spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any God or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? The king answered, the decree stands in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. Then they said to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you. Your majesty, ordered to the decree you put in writing. He still prays three times a day. When the king heard this, he was greatly distressed. He was determined to rescue Daniel and made every effort until sundown to save him. Then the men went as a group to King Darius and said to him, Remember, your majesty, that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no decree or edict that the king issues can be changed. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought, and it was placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring, and with the rings of his nobles, so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace, spent the night without eating, and without any entertainment being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up, and he hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve so continually, been able to rescue you from the lion's? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, 
because I was found innocent in his sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and gave, gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. At the king's command, the men who had falsely accused Daniel were brought in and thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. And before they reached the floor of the den, the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the nations and peoples of every language in all the earth, May you prosper greatly. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. So for context here, Daniel has now been hired in the courts under two rulers. We had Nebuchadnezzar in the first chapter. We've had Belshazzar a bit later on. And at the end of chapter 5, we see that Belshazzar has died the same day that he has proclaimed Daniel, the third highest ruler. He's clothed him in, in finery and adorned him with this golden chain to declare his authority in the land. And Daniel has proven to be a man of integrity and of principle. And he's risen in influence at this point through not only his character, but his gifting. And as we transition to this, this chapter 6, Daniel is still being appointed as chief over 120 satraps. Without going into, into this sort of fully, um, he is simply a high-ranking ruler for the kingdom under this new king, Darius. But King Darius is fooled by his advisors, isn't he? He's, he's fooled into believing it would be good to change this law uh, to a decree banning prayer to anyone other than himself. So how does Daniel give us an example of courageous resistance here? What is it about the lifestyle, um, the habits, the portrayal of this, this rescue from the lion's den? It demonstrates more than just a nice little story. It's more than a rescue story. So the title for today is Courageous Resistance, Resisting Fear. And we could go far deeper into this passage, talking about many areas of Daniel's character, his gifting. What I really want to focus on this morning is prayer. And I'm going to give you six points. Um, <laughs> I tried to do the six P's of prayer. I had to get a wordsmith in, in Andrew, uh, to do the, the six S's of prayer uh, to make it a little bit easier. So here we are. Here are the six S's coming up. The first one is space, silence, and solitude. And as we read this account of Daniel, um, we actually hear him talk only once in the whole chapter, uh, which is when he responds to Darius and says, you know, um, I, I have lived, I've survived. Silence can be seen as a form of resistance. Silence can be seen as a form of resistance. Sometimes it can be used as a passive weapon to counter that aggressive force, that voice or that agenda. However, there is 
here it is not being used as a weapon. It's being more used to disarm a situation. And we see Daniel leaning into God. He's trusting him, trusting him to speak for him and act on his behalf. So he is not flustered by a new decree, but instead he's retreating to his usual space in prayer. He is alone. He's seeking solitude, away from the distraction, away from uh, the, the words and the, the things that are being spoken about him. And he's choosing to seek God's face and to pray. Where do we run when the environment gets difficult? When the desire to respond with words or with action is not from a place of kindness or a place of love in our hearts? Are we running to a friend who will listen to us as we gossip about our issues, where we point the finger of blame? We deflect, we control, and we respond in fear. Or are we running to Jesus? Are we running to him, our friend? Are we going to let him comfort us? Are we going to let him advise us and help us so he can realign us with Scripture, with our kingdom identity? And it's so easy, isn't it, to run to that nearest person who's going to let us vent. It's much harder to run to Jesus in the secret place, privately, where no one else is going to see, and let him help. Number two is a sustained pattern. And it's interesting that Daniel uh, is not finding a place to pray because he's worried. He's not gone to cry out to God to rescue him. Because we know that in verse 10, he has gone to pray as he always has. In fact, he prays three times a day. It's likely, according to the commentators, that he would have prayed at 9 a.m., midday, 3 p.m., uh, as King David did here in Psalm 55. It says, As for me, I call to God, and the Lord saves me. Evening, morning, and noon, I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. There is a strong suggestion that this would have been the times of 9, 12, and 3. And I say this with confidence because it's exactly what Peter the Apostle did. He prayed three times a day. Also, the Jewish tradition back then was to pray three times every day at those times. And these times are even referred to as the hours of prayer in the New Testament. And you can read them in Acts 2, Acts 3, and Acts 10 there on the screen there if you can want to take note of those. Now, I'm highlighting this to say that Daniel is not randomly picking a time to pray. He has a pattern. It's a set of habits for his life. You could call this a rule of life. But at this point here in chapter 6, he is probably 80, 82 years of age is the estimation. And yet, he was a young man, probably around 17, when he was first selected for service in chapter 1. So Daniel has been establishing this sustained pattern of prayer and he's continued it for 65 years. What are our established patterns, habits? What have we been laying down the foundations for in our lives? Number three is the secret place. In verse 10, it says, He went to his upstairs room where the windows they opened up in front of Jerusalem. And he's facing out towards potentially a lot of people who are going to see him pray. 
Yet just one verse later, he's found praying three times a day, just as before, and is charged with breaking this new law. So Daniel's response to this decree on prayer was to continue praying anyway, wasn't it? He just carried on. There's no complaint from Daniel. There's no panic about his stand against this decree. He just retains his freedom, in contrast to King Darius and his accusers, the other satraps. He chooses not to hide the fact that he's praying. He just returns to his usual place of prayer. And uh, we're just going to read something from Matthew 6. Verse 5 to 6, it says, And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. But when prayer is mocked, when prayer is put under pressure, or like Daniel when he faced persecution, to pray in secret is to give the appearance of fearing the king more than God. So this small act that he's doing here to continue praying publicly is a small act was was probably more revolutionary than any rebellion he could have set up. Prayer is acknowledging a higher power no matter the circumstances. And in this instance, it makes even the king powerless at the threat of death because it doesn't deter Daniel. Are we praying in the basement still? And is it time to pray in an open window? Or have we been praying in places where we are seen and maybe it is time to spend more time in that secret place? And that's a challenge to all of us. It's a challenge to me. It's a challenge to the leadership of our team. It's a challenge to maybe someone who's never prayed out loud before. To be thinking about what we're doing with our prayer life. Do we need to be more public or more secret? Where do we need to resist? Are you carving out the time? Are you taking the risk for God? And that brings us on to number four, our stance. Prayer in the Bible would have been carried out in a stance of standing. This was the regular posture for prayer. However, it says that Daniel got down on his knees. It's a submissive, lowering sign of humility before God. And it would have been reserved for times of particular solemnity or need. It then adds, to his God. So he got down on his knees, to his God. Or in other translations, before his God. This is the term of meekness in the presence of authority. Daniel has relationship, and God is present. Part of this stance is not just the position he's taking up, it's the fact that he's no longer on his feet. It means he cannot quickly get away. It suggests his desire to linger in the presence of God, to wait on him, to see what he might say. So this goes back to that that pattern of prayer, Daniel had a relationship with God, and his stance reflects that he, he was wanting to spend more time, not just a few minutes with God. Number five is self-absorbed or spirit-soaked. So Daniel, at this point, is in physical exile, living in Babylon. 
Yeah, he's a Jewish man, and he's been there since he's a young man. However, if, if Daniel is, is in physical exile at this point, then we ourselves are in spiritual exile. Our true home is living with God. We are living, wanting to live in his immediate presence. It's a form of exile that is shared by all of humanity. The Bible is loosely summarizing as God's work to restore heaven back to earth and therefore to bring humanity out of spiritual exile. Daniel's prayers are not focused on himself here, but on the nation of Israel. He stands in the gap for her. He soaks it in prayer. It's not too dissimilar to say sowing a seed and then watering it. Daniel is really faithful in his prayer. He's not self-absorbed, but chooses to pray for restoration of his people, of the land. And through that, does not focus on his own circumstances. Yet so often we come to God, don't we, with our list. We come with a, a desperate cry. We come with, God help me in my time of need. Yet Daniel here is outward in his prayer life, missional in his thinking. Because his focus is not on his problems and his worries, and he does not fear the lion's den. He's not anxious. He trusts God to save him from the pit. Whereas we see King Darius rushing to the pit, agitated, anxious, not in his kingly robes. He probably skipped breakfast to see if Daniel had survived the night and yet had seen that he had been saved by his God. Darius prays with no real faith that Daniel would be delivered. It's just a wistful hope. And it's not good to pray for things unseen. Is it not good, sorry? Is it not good to pray for things unseen, things that can only be seen from God's perspective? A prayer of faith, aligning our hearts with his. Are we prepared for the pit in our life? Are we ready to resist fear? Last one is sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. So who is king of Daniel's life? We of course know by now that God is the, the Lord of Daniel's life. God is sovereign. He's the high ruler of his life. The supreme authority. No decree will dissuade him from serving him fully. <clears throat> and when we pray, when we step into that sovereignty of God and trust him, we can know that he will come. God sends help into our lives. He sends an angel to shut the lion's mouth. And he previously sent an angel into the fiery furnace to stand with Daniel's friends. So they are not preserved from these events. They are preserved in these events. God meets us in the pit, in the furnace. The early Christian believers often found themselves in prison. Paul in Ephesians is just one example from our last series. They had refused to obey human beings rather than God and found themselves in prison. <clears throat> but angels were sent to open the gates and release them. 
So we've got space, silence, solitude. Where do we run to? We've got sustained pattern. It's a daily thing, a ritual, a pattern that keeps us from anxiety and fear. We've got the secret place. Let's check ourselves in this season. Are we going there? Is that our, our focus? We've got the stance, thinking about what the body's doing as we pray. How we're positioning ourselves in front of God. Are we self-absorbed, looking at our issues and our circumstances in prayer all the time and bringing that list? Or are we going to look outwardly and pray for those who are not here, <laughs> us? Pray for others, pray outwardly. Soak it in spirit. Are we going to be putting God as our sovereign ruler, <clears throat> our high ruler, place of authority? And Daniel stands firm. He waits for God to shut the lion's mouth. He has full trust in adversity. He doesn't run. He doesn't seek comfort to protect him. He's continuing to pray in the face of threat. Willing to step into or submit to whatever God wants. His focus is on the king. So in our daily life, are we using prayer as an act of courageous resistance? Where is the first place that we turn when trouble or adversity hit? Is God the first place we turn? Or is prayer the last resort when our own efforts have failed? Because this year as a church, as we delve into this theme of courageous resistance, it doesn't, if it doesn't start and end with prayer, then we won't be able to stand for very long. Brothers and sisters, are we serious about prayer? Do we truly believe it makes a difference? 